you please be seated? Well, in our series, we've consistently seen that the evil in Daniel's day, like the evil in our own day, is in fact a manifestation of something even darker behind it. And I recognize that in a, a time like this, it's not all that comforting to hear that the evil on our screens is merely an example of something even more evil that we are yet to see. But the book of Daniel reveals that the days of our earthly enemies are numbered because the days of their demonic prince are numbered as well. Satan, we heard last week, the power behind all evil powers is defeated already, and those who align themselves with him unwittingly or on purpose will be removed with him in the last days, in the end. We rarely get to see this spiritual warfare and spiritual battle that's raging in the unseen realm. What we get today is a rare glimpse in Scripture, just almost a peeling back of the curtain for just a chapter as we look at this spiritual conflict that rages about us. What Daniel calls in chapter 10, verse 1, this great conflict, this conflict of kingdoms between the forces of God and the forces of this world, a conflict in the unseen realm played out and manifesting from time to time here on earth. We get to look behind the thing behind all of this. And as Daniel looks, it says in verse 5, I lifted my eyes and looked and behold. Three vision words right here, looked uh, and eyes and behold. Three words to do with something becoming clear, being seen, becoming manifest. Something is revealed to Daniel that without this revelation, he could not possibly know or see or be aware of. Daniel sees a man clothed in linen. I do have scripture open before you. There's many complicated little signs and symbols here. Daniel 10 uh, sees a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist, a body like beryl, a face like the appearance of lightning, eyes like flaming torches, arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Weird stuff. And remember what I've told you before. We need to learn how to read the signs if we are to understand what they mean and then how to use them. My Daniel professor, I had one, that's quite a luxury. My Daniel professor, Dr. Lucas told me that an English guy, he once took a job in New York, the, the original Englishman in New York. And uh, when he arrived, he bought a newspaper, a local paper, and he opened it up, started reading the articles to see what was going on in the city. And inside of the paper was a cartoon, just a sketch, pen and ink sketch reproduced inside the paper. In the sketch was the Statue of Liberty, but it was submerged in the sand so that only its head and the torch were sticking out of the sand and the rest was buried. And in front of the Statue of Liberty in this sketch, there were some riders on horseback that were, were like apes, but they had human features and human faces that were distinctive in some way. And he said that as a foreigner, he was completely baffled by the cartoon that he was seeing, but 
Of course, no newspaper would ever publish a cartoon that no one understood. The local readers got all of it immediately. The cartoon was printed just after the movie Planet of the Apes had come out. It was a parody of a major scene in that movie. And the people were caricatures, the apes were caricatures of prominent local politicians. Many New Yorkers felt very strongly that these people had harmed their city. The readership of the newspaper especially uh, felt that. But for my professor, not knowing the movie, because I'm not sure he'd ever seen any movie, to be honest with you, he only reads biblical Hebrew and Greek, doesn't even read English, so I don't think he'd been to the movies. Uh, Not knowing the politics, not knowing the problem, almost all of this was lost on him. He could see the sketch and it was complete nonsense to him. Daniel, he said to me, can be like that when we first start reading it as well. And that just as he needed to get to know the people and the politics and the, and the movie, we need to enculturate. We need to, if you like, become locals in the text of the book of Daniel so that these images and symbols that made great sense to the people at the time start to make great sense to us. Perhaps some of this stuff to early readers and early listeners would have been as clear as that cartoon was to the New Yorkers. Loads of symbolism here. Loads of things to become familiar with. First of all, verse 5. This creature is a man. Do not get bogged down in the gender. It doesn't matter at all uh, what kind of a person it is. We are all humans meant to relate to this human character. It's unlike all of the other weird creatures that we've seen in Daniel so far. Quite unlike them all, isn't it? This is not some weird flying lion with wings and then horns on its head and then eyeballs on its horns and then new horns replacing the old horns and weird eyeballs replacing the other eyeballs flying around, coming out of the sea. All right, it's not one of those. But we've had enough of those, haven't we? This is basically a bloke. Also, though, quite unique. Linen clothes, priestly garments, symbolic of purity. The belt, not just gold, but fine gold, symbolic of of rarity. His body, like beryl, a bright and precious stone, is symbolic of, of power, of strength, of value, and all of those things. With lightning and fire, this man, quote unquote man, is is too bright to look at. It's fierce. Uh, clearly a powerful manifestation here. These are images that are often associated in Scripture with God himself. And his arms and his legs are like burnished bronze. They were strong. The vision of the statue that we looked at earlier this year in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and that weirdly he thought would be a good idea to reproduce in his own kingdom, like this one on the bulletin cover, was strong on top, but it was weak underneath. It had a big golden head, and it had some bronze, but its feet were clay. It was sort of top-heavy. It was pompous. It was vulnerable. It was ready to collapse with a big, heavy, swollen head and tiny, fragile feet. This thing is powerfully rooted. This thing's legs are like, are like bronze. It's like Superman, a man of steel. It's firmly rooted and, and, and firmly built. It's stone and metal, like stone and metal, not actually stone and metal, because this is symbolic. 
and there's a roar of triumph to his voice, like a battle cry. The creature is real, but we're being told what the real creature is uh, metaphorically like. His voice is like a battle cry, like a Steelers crowd at a touchdown. There's a roar. It's like a sort of a battle cry, a sort of um, a military rallying shout every time he opens his mouth. Very probably like a human, but actually an angel. That is what Daniel sees. And it's not the angel's glory that Daniel sees. It is the glory of God. In the Bible, often people see an angel and they confuse it with God himself. What I would say to you is, in a much lesser sense, the same should be true of you. When people see you, in a much lesser sense, they should confuse you with God. They shouldn't actually think you are God, but they should see something that is like God about you. The closer we are to God, the more of God's glory we will reflect. The more firmly rooted we will be, the stronger we will be. The angel is filled with the power of God. The angel is radiating the glory of God. The angel comes from the presence of God. And some of you will notice as you move to spiritual maturity and grow in your faith that that you do as well. You start to look a bit more like Christ. You will indeed even find that your features change the closer you are to God. If you come to church looking like death, maybe death is your God. New people here often remark, when they come and they worship here for the first time, just how joy-filled our worship is and uh, how free our people seem, how, how happy they are. Well, that's not weird. That's normal. Exodus 34 says, When Moses went up Mount Sinai, the presence of God, it says his skin of his face shone. Uh, the psalmist frequently prays that God would make his face to shine upon us and then we shine back like a sort of sunbed. Uh, In Acts chapter 6, when Stephen was seized and put on trial, it says that all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That Stephen, the closer he is to God, the more he looks like an angel, and angels look like God. You get the point, don't you? Romans 12 says, Be aglow and burning with the Spirit. Psalm 104 says you can get the exact same effect with a good bottle of wine. That doesn't count. When Wesley found his heart strangely warmed, it wasn't because, you know, he was on the grog. It was the Holy Spirit, not a bottle of booze that had given him, you know, red ears and a boozer's nose. It's the Holy Spirit. In a ministry that I have to the dying, I quite often see the dying looking more alive than, 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 than the living. I find that as the body becomes more frail, quite often that which is sometimes hidden by the flesh just shines out more. I've noticed a state of a person's spiritual health becomes most prominently obvious in their last days. And quite often those who are alive in Christ but physically dying shine the most of anyone that I meet. The angel is close to God. He has been irradiated with the glory of God. So he looks like the glory of God. A powerful impact this has on Daniel. Uh, In in a 
Context like our own, he's in a city that's under siege. He's in a city that's being fought and defeated. There is death around him. He's wrestling with a problem in his city, like the one that we're wrestling in our own at this time. And he's asking God to intervene with the evil that he sees on his streets and places of worship, crying out to God for hope like we are. And this terrifying manifestation is simply a sign of what God can do, indeed is doing about it. It's so alarming, this angel, that Daniel's friends, verse 7, flee. And Daniel himself, verse 8, falls to the ground. And uh, Stu Simpson said at the adult forum earlier, I don't think he had any choice. I think you're right, Stu. I think, I think you're absolutely right. No strength was left in me, he says. I reread it, and you're bang on. Just for a moment, Daniel says, my radiant appearance was fearfully changed. For all the glow that will come from Daniel's encounter with God, for a few moments he gets quite pale. The power of God is overwhelming. Uh, you know, the, the color draws from his face. He goes green. I think he nearly pukes just with the power of the presence of God. This is not to be taken lightly. It's overwhelming. Sometimes when we become more aware of the power of God, we are overwhelmed. A few weeks ago before service, I found myself physically shaking as I just read the scripture of the day, just, just, just trembling with the power of God that I was reading. And Kat said she, she'd had the same experience. Uh, this morning, one or two of us had the same thing uh, with, with the Collect for Purity, as Connie just invited us to read it in a new way, not just yada, 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 the same old words, but actually really engage with it. And whew, We were just trembling with the power of the enormity of the word of God. It's a wonderful thing. Sometimes when God speaks to you, when he's revealed to you, when you have a power encounter with him, it can be um, more of a rebuke, for want of a better phrase. So last week at a funeral, I, I was carrying the processional cross to the grave. And I can tell you, I'm going to be really, really honest with you, I was feeling a bit grumpy about it all. It was a wet day, a bit of drizzle. I had a lot of work to do. The cross, if you carried it, is actually really heavy. And so I was in a mood. I had a cob on, a monk on, all right? Bit of a tantrum. I was having a trow. I was cross. You know all these words. <laughs> I was irritated. I was wound up. I was annoyed. And I'm there carrying the cross. I don't, you know, I don't really want to be I'm getting drizzled on. There was even a bagpiper there. And you know what I think about them. So, you know. <laughs> ah! It was a terrible moment. And, um, no, it's lovely, absolutely lovely. And uh, I, I just, I was grumbling as I carried the cross. And I felt just entitled to be doing something else and irritated that I was there. And all of a sudden I was just convicted, an overwhelming washing of the Holy Spirit, just convicted at, 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 at the, the, the feeble nature of my own soul. The, the, the rottenness of my heart, the, the sin, my attitude. I felt absolutely terrified by the Lord in that moment that I would dare grumble about such an important ministry and just convicted of my sin, that, that God would carry his own cross and then die on it for me, and I'm just carrying a little silver symbolic one for him. Getting irritated and having a pity party behind the cross. 
And not only that, but of course, I know what the cross means. I know the gospel. I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm a minister of the cross. I've only got one sermon. It's all about the cross. I know that for believers who have put their faith in Christ crucified, there awaits a crown of righteousness and life. And so as I walked down a hill carrying a cross towards a grave, I fully knew the theology that I was headed towards a corpse that was headed towards life. This was not a burial of a corpse. It was a promise of a resurrection that I was headed to behind the cross. It's why we carry the cross to the grave, to remind ourselves of our hope of everlasting life, just as Christ Jesus carried a real cross, a much bigger, heavier one, up a hill, being the Lord of life, towards death. What a sinful inversion of the gospel I was experiencing in my sinful heart as I moaned and the bagpipes droned. God spoke to me about that, and I was afraid. I was absolutely terrified. Almost every time that God appears in Scripture, an angel appears, when there's a manifestation of God, the human response is one of fear. I think in our culture, we have lost any sense of the fear of God. We think that God's name is something to be shouted when we're not happy, or our team is not winning, or something. And that's for angels. I think we get our, our, our angelology, our, the, our theology of angels, uh, not from Scripture, but from Hallmark. We think, you know, we've got the idea of an angel today is just some big fat baby in a diaper with feathers on. Angels are terrifying. They are warriors for the Lord. They shine with the glory of the Lord. They stand in the presence of the Lord. And usually the first thing an angel says when they show up to a human is, verse 12, fear not. They wouldn't say that if they were not fearsome things. Often, though, though they're fearsome things, their message is one of love. How God is that? Just like we saw last week, the righteousness of God and the love of God go hand in hand. He turns up with the righteousness of God and the power of God, and the first thing he communicates is the love of God. How God is that? The angel said to me, Daniel, reporting his his encounter, O Daniel, a man greatly loved. The human response to the power of God is fear, but the initiative of God is love. From the first day, verse 12, that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. Just as we saw last week, the minute... We humble ourselves before God. The minute we confess our sins without cloaking or dissembling our sins and fudging them and arguing our point, he of his great mercy hath heard us. When we turn to God, he hears us. And as I repented, carrying that cross down the hill, instantaneously I felt beloved, washed with the love of God. Gone was the fear instantly was this overwhelming sense of the, of the love of God for me. Not at all ashamed, just thankful. That was how I felt. I practically skipped back up the hill with the cross, you know, with this 
revival in my heart because of the love of God. And I came back and I told my wife about this great moment. I said it was kind of raining a bit and there was a bagpipe. It was really awful. And I was kind of grumbling about it, carrying the cross. I felt really sinful about it. God spoke to me. It was really terrible. And then I felt really fearful. And then I felt really loved. And I came back up the hill. I felt really revived as God spoke to me. It was absolutely wonderful. And I just became thoroughly aware that I have this sin in my heart, specifically the sin, I think, of entitlement. And I confessed it before my Lord, love, and I confessed it before you. And and she said to me like this, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. That's ministry, isn't it? She said, I knew this about a week ago, but I knew that you needed to hear it for yourself, so I've been praying for you. (laughs) Little glimpse into our marriage for you. Just like the glimpse that we get into the conflict in the heavenly realms right now, this unseen thing that becomes manifest through the pages of Scripture. Look at the fascinating glimpse into uh, the battle behind the battle that we see right now as the curtain is peeled open and we just get a little glimpse of, of all of these things. We've seen the angelic. Although the angel is fearsome, he is for us. And so Daniel feels beloved. Now for the demonic the other side. And note, although the prayer was immediately heard, it was not immediately answered. Daniel cries out for help, but there is a delay. And the angel explains the delay in verse 13. He says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Are you tracking with this? I had to reread it about 20 times before I really, really got it. That's why Scripture is so useful to have open in front of you. The angel says, I would have come sooner, but I was busy. Sorry, but I was battling a demon. The prince of the kingdom of Persia, the demonic power behind the earthly power, the evil behind the evil, Persia's demon. That's what the angel was battling. Cyrus's, Darius's demon. That's what the angel was engaged with. There was some kind of spiritual battle in the unseen realm raging over Daniel's head that he might not have been able to see. The the spiritual goading and provoking and leading and deceiving and whispering of the demonic to Daniel's enemies here on earth. The power behind the power, the evil behind the evil is is suddenly revealed. Something that hitherto Daniel perhaps had no idea or little idea was really going on. In fact, the angel even admits that this spiritual battle in the unseen realm is so real and so hard fought that Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. He had to get help like a sort of wrestler in a match, tagging in his friend. He had to get help. Well, this conversation with the angel, this little conversation in chapter 10, it just reveals so many things about spiritual warfare right here. Firstly, I think it reveals that the power of the false kingdom is enormous. Even the angel needed help. Spiritual warfare is not something to be taken at all lightly. It is real and it is frightening. Uh, Secondly, verse 20, the angel says, I have to go back, he's not finished yet, and fight the prince of Persia, and then I have to fight the prince of Greece. Do you see how God knows, the angel knows, which battles are coming up and in what order? 
God knows, the angel knows, that although he's in the midst of this battle, he will win, and he's already thinking about the next one. History tells us this is exactly what happened, that Babylon was defeated by Persia, that Persia was defeated by Greece, that Greece was defeated by Rome, and this angel says, when I've finished with the demon of Persia, I'm going to deal with the demon of Greece. Almost like God is just knocking down his enemies one by one by one. A systematic dealing with evil in turn. It's ordered, it's programmed, it's predicted. This is certain and it is clear and it is decisive and it is systematic and it is logical. And thirdly, leaping forward in time, past all of those demonic battles that rise and fall and rage around us. He now leaps ahead to the end times, to the end of all things, a glimpse now of the end of the world, the last battle, the final decisive showdown between good and evil in the end. And this angel says, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. The book of truth, sometimes referred to as the book of life. Malachi calls it the book of remembrance. This is God's book that has in it written down everyone who is saved and has not written in it everyone who is lost. It is God's list of who goes where in the end that the angel is talking about. And God, we're told, has written out the end already. God already knows who is in and who is out, who wins and who loses. And we're being told that God is sovereign not over all of the systematic battles that rage one by one by one, but sovereign even over the last battle over all things in the end. Fourthly, note that although the angel is fresh from this battle, and this battle has been so intense that he had to get someone to help him in it, a battle so intense that we can't possibly imagine it, note that the angel doesn't appear with broken wings and a bloodied face and a limp. He's not battle-scarred. He hasn't got powder burns on his face and a sort of look of exhaustion about him. He hasn't got battle dressings and, and, and wounds about him. Seemingly, this angel, the harder he has fought, the more he shines with the glory of God. His battle wounds are glorious. It's not the angel's strength that he's been fighting in, of course. It is God's. The more he fights, the more he's filled with the power of God. Fifthly, although God could just press fast forward, click and go to the end, because he knows the end, because he's written out the end in the book, and he's systematically dealing with everything, and he could just speed it up because he's sovereign over all things. Note, instead of doing that, he chooses instead to use his forces and deploy them systematically as signs of his sovereign power over time. He deliberately delays. And if God wants to deploy his spiritual forces, his angels, in this battle of the kingdoms, perhaps he also wants to deploy you, the people of God here on earth, enlist and deploy you in this battle as well. This is the very point where many Christians make a huge mistake. When we see evil in our city, like the evil that we saw last week, a a senseless slaughter in a place of worship, of a people of peace. Quite naturally, people, not just Christians, but most people, 
are horrified by that and overwhelmed with a desire to do something about it. And so this week, politicians and priests of all kinds have lined up to suggest a variety of their own solutions. We just do this, and then it'll be okay. No, 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 we need to get rid of this, and then we'll be okay. No, we need a compromise between this and this, then we'll be okay. Here's what we need to do to fix this problem. Is that do this, do that, go there, say this, and then it'll be okay. And each of them has prescribed in their own way some human solution in their own strength. Not to denigrate such efforts. The desire to act comes from a good place. But the evil in our streets is a manifestation of something even more evil behind it. If this is a spiritual problem, then we need to prescribe a spiritual solution. And for that, we need God's strength, not our own. So verse 18 Look how many times the word strengthen or strong appears in these two verses. One having the appearance of a man, not a natural man, it's an angel, touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong. There's the second one, and of good courage. I'm going to cheat and call that strong as well. That's three. And he spoke to me, and I was strengthened for, and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened, past tense, number five, me. It's when people get close to God that they become ready for the battle. It's when we're strengthened by God and close to God that we start to glow. It's when we start to glow and shine with the glory of God that we reveal the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that we manifest the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit like? looks like you manifesting him. When the people of God manifest the Holy Spirit and shine as a light to the nations, we engage in the right kind of a battle, the right kind of a way. There is one job. It's like an internet meme, isn't it? You've had one job, church. Stop prattling on and engaging in petty politics. You've got one job, church. Manifest. Shine with the glory of God. Glow. Point to Jesus. How can we produce a statement about this trauma without talking about Jesus. What else have we got? That's what this All Saints Sunday is about. About those who've died in the faith, died in hope. Maybe those who've shone in our lives and led us to Jesus. Bill Patton gave me a Bible, 1992. That guy. You know, people who have shone in our lives and led us to Christ. Art Barron told me to go and get ordained. That guy. You know, people that we can name and thank God for. That's what this day is about. People who shine and engaged in a much more serious spiritual battle. It must really irritate Satan that we do this stuff. Satan must be so angry that we do this stuff. He must be so wound up that last uh, week produced more shininess, not less. That last weekend and this weekend, our churches have been shining more, not less, in the face of violence. It must really wind him up that hundreds of people lined up outside a synagogue at Adat Shalom on Friday and held a candlelit vigil to pray for the Jews as they met inside and prepared for their Sabbath, saying, we are with you, we stand for you. Really irritated Satan. All the ministers in the ministerium told me that their pews are more full on the Sunday after the slaughter than they had been the Sunday before. The 
people of God are called to shine with the light of God. James says when the demons hear this, they shudder. It's not a good shuddering that leads to some sort of repentance. It's a death blow to the demonic. Strengthened by God, we have one job, church, and that is to point to Jesus, shine with the power of God and manifest the love of God. Let us pray. Lord God, you are powerful over all things. In the face of evil, would you call us to demonstrate your power through demonstrating your love? Would you protect the people of God? Would you protect our friends, the Jews in this city? Would you be with Yair, their rabbi? And would you be with us as a church as as we seek to point to the power and the glory of Christ alone? In the name of Jesus, amen.